Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickinson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo Podcast. On this week's show, we're going to dive in and discuss the ongoing impact of the floods that have occurred in and around the Dubbo region. We'll also find out what the Premier had to say in a recent phone conversation with our Mayor. Whilst we'll also hear about the latest round of community group funding. Today also, we'll be having some questions from you, the listener, along with finding out about some of the other major news items that have happened this week in our absolutely beautiful Dubbo region. So without any further ado, let's jump straight in. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Yeah, great. Thanks, Mark. And thanks for coming along again and having a chat. I love to get as much information about this region out into the public and doing it with you is a great way to achieve that. Oh, absolutely. And that's exactly what the intention is, isn't it, the podcast, to get our message out there to people, what's been happening in and around our wonderful region. And there's so much. That's one of the things that I learned from when I first got onto council in 2004, I thought I knew a bit about Dubbo. I'd grown up here, went away to uni for a few years, but essentially thought I knew the area fairly well. But I got on a council and went, wow, we're involved in so many things. And that was just council. Mm. Then you found out about all these new community groups and different things were happening. So it is really exciting. And on any given day, on any given weekend in Dubbo, I get exposed to a little bit of it. And I think that's one of the real privileges of my job. But mm. there's so much more that goes on that I don't even know about. So it's a good chance in this podcast just to tell people about some of the things that are occurring. And people are interested, obviously, in what happening is happening on council. Yes. And that's just got so much of a bearing on what happens in the community and how much influence we can have on the overall community. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful to hear. And that's exactly it, isn't it? Mm. So let's jump in, Matt. So obviously, look, last weekend, we had the floods come back in again. It was uh, sort of came very fast too, I must admit, there when it came through. I was out having a bit of a walk along the river there on the uh, Sunday morning and by Sunday afternoon I get a phone call from my daughter actually saying the fact that Dad had got to move the car from behind Riverdale because the floods are coming back in again. Yeah. So so what happened there? Did the Was there a little river came? Did it rise again? Like what caused it to basically rise so quickly? And it wasn't so much the rain that we had here in Dubbo and that's one of the things that often happens. You'll get things like the little river, which is a badly named river because sometimes it becomes the very big <laughs> That's exactly right. You've got the Talbragar, of course, that comes down and joins in. Even if you go down to Wellington, some of the things that happen down there with the Bell River there. So Mm. often it is that water that happens upstream. And when the last podcast we did last week, we talked about the Dream Parade, the Dream Land Parade, for example, was called off because of the rain and the wind. Now, the rain didn't come as bad as we had expected, but it was still a good decision because the wind was so bad, there would have been some of those various lands that would have been Mm. blown three or four streets away. It it? was, that's right. But even when we did that, we were talking about last Sunday morning, we last talked, and it was Sunday afternoon at four o'clock that we had to close the Cerisia. So the water was coming up. It was that rain that was obviously upstream from there. Keep in mind that the state government is still letting some water out of the dam. Yes. Now, that might seem crazy, but the idea of continuing to let that water out is that you might have flood waters at a lower level for longer rather than shorter at a high level. So Mm -hmm. by leaving that out, it means you've always got that bit of headroom or trying to keep that bit of headroom in the dam. And I think the state government's done a great job managing the water in the dam over the last many months that we've had, probably the last Mm. year that we've had more than 100% in the dam. And I know that sounds crazy, more than Mm. 100%, but 100% is for the irrigation allocation, but it can go up to 160%. Again, yeah, you don't want to have it at 160% because that means the next rains that come in, it starts to go over the top of the dam. So you're always trying to keep it below that. So it has been interesting there. So on Sunday at about four o'clock, the Cerisia Bridge was closed again. Now, it had only been closed two weeks before that. Mm. I think the previous two weeks, probably 15 days, a Saturday before that two weeks, and it had been closed on that Saturday. Uh, It was that Saturday night about 10 o'clock, 
and it was closed till Monday, 2 o'clock. So not too bad, a bit over a day. Mm. But the traffic chaos that occurred, especially on that Monday, it was the first day back yes. at school, we had cars lined up out past the airport trying to get across that LH Ford bridge there. Oh, yes. It was we a bottleneck, were, wasn't it? It was a bottleneck. We were conscious of trying to keep that bridge closed for as little time as possible. We work really well with the RFS, the Rural Fire Service, the SES, the police as well, but they helped us get it back open again by 9.30 Monday. So you did have some fairly congested traffic first thing Monday, people yep. trying to get to work or get to school on that Monday, but by 9.30 at least we cleared that up. So that wasn't too bad. Mm. Again, not fantastic to have it closed, but at least in that scenario, twice over that 15-day period for a little bit less than a day, a little bit more than a day, if I go back to 2010, that's the last time we had to close right. the Sirius Bridge, yes. but it was closed for about two weeks, and that so was two just weeks. Wow. bedlam across Dubbo, trying yeah. to get people across that bridge. It's amazing how quickly we forget that, though. Like, in 2010, and it's amazing sometimes how, how our minds work, I suggest, and we, we think back that far. I had no idea it was two weeks. Was it really two weeks? Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. Amazing. I can't tell you the exact time frame, but approximately two weeks that was closed for. But it was, it was at the point, I remember my wife was helping some of her friends that lived over in West Dubbo, She'd pick up the kids from school on this side of the bridge, take them down to the bridge, walk them across the bridge, and then her friends would pick up the kids from the other side of the bridge. That was a much quicker process than waiting an hour, an hour and a half to get across that bridge. And you can imagine traffic has increased since 2010 so Absolutely. hence those lineups back yeah. to the airport plus and of I, course all the new development over in West yeah, Dubbo as well that's right and I feel really sorry, sorry for someone that had to go somewhere in West Dubbo because if you're over there trying to get into that traffic you almost feel like saying look let me in please I don't need to get across the bridge I'm just going to go somewhere that's else right, in West Dubbo yes, too far but you had to stay in that line if you had to get across yeah. that bridge or anywhere in West Dubbo so yeah. it was pretty tough anyway just congratulations to our staff and those other agencies that they work with because they did do a fantastic job. And yes. on a Sunday, you've got better things to do than oh, start right, to erect it? signs and redirect traffic and yeah. make sure everything's safe. But our staff did a fantastic yeah. job and did some pretty long shifts there. And yeah, exactly it. And the, you know, as you say, we tend to forget the fact that when it is a Sunday afternoon, we've got our own little things going with family. And these guys are out there doing their bit. And as you say, there was community people involved as well, like the RDF and this sort of thing, these guys involved, which is fantastic. Yeah. So just one final question on that. Who actually makes the decision on when roads are closed and, and when we do close those roads and when other areas are barricaded off? Is that a council decision or is that an external body that makes that call? Well, it's a combined decision. It's a great question because people do actually wonder, do, is there a hotline to the mayor and the mayor rings up or, right. or they ring the mayor <laughs> like and say, yes, close the door. That's there right. Uh, but it's not quite like that. There's an emergency management committee. And on that emergency management committee, we've got council, we've got police, we've got SES. The Rural Fire Service don't sit on that, but they're an important part of that process in terms of being consulted and just having that conversation. So okay. really, it's a consensus decision around a number of the stakeholders. And it gets to the stage where it's a pretty obvious decision. There's not mm. really any decision needs to be made. When you've got water lapping up to the side of the Sirisu Bridge, you say it's going to be pretty close and we're going to have to close the bridge you get water going across it you have to get to the point where you can't just leave traffic going across it when water starts flowing Mm. across it so it is pretty easy and we do also rely on information from the state government in terms of the height those estimations of the river height how high is it going to get and as an interesting one back on the 8th of october when we closed it previously it was 8.63 meters the river got to whereas this last one it got to 8.3 meters so again you're relying on that information how high is it going to get that gives us an indication of how long we might have to close it for and again we're we're talking to the state government saying can you restrict the water coming out of the dam as much mm. as possible because we don't want it 
get the cerussia open. Yep. So keep it below the eight metres, for example, rather than letting it above yes. that. So it is really a joint decision yes. amongst people sitting around the table together or in the modern environment, sitting around teams, meetings together, on video calls together to say, what's it at? How is it going to get? What time are we closing it? And then those decisions are made really in that consensus environment. Oh, fantastic. And just uh, look, as a footnote to this as well, was there any more damage that was done with the latest one? Has it uh, compounded any of the damage from before or are we basically still in the same situation as the flood from a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, probably just roads. Okay. There's no significant damage done to any other infrastructure. But while you put roads underwater, while you have water flowing across roads, yeah. then you, you're still doing more damage, continue doing more damage to those roads. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. Oh, thanks, Matt. Now, moving along, we're going along now to the bit of a feedback I suggest for the listeners in regards to the local government conference. Now, you were away there last week. How did the, uh, the conference go? Was it a worthwhile venture? Oh, absolutely. I think conferences like that are always worthwhile. So this is the local government New South Wales conference. So this is the peak body for councils across the state. All 128 councils across the state are members of the local government New South Wales organisation, and they have an annual conference. So with that conference, in this particular one, we took across four councillors, myself and three other councillors, and we had one staff member there. And I encourage my fellow councillors every time, after I went to my first conference many years ago, mm. I encouraged all of my fellow councillors to go to as many conferences as they possibly could of this particular conference because it's a really great chance to learn, to be exposed to other council areas, to find out what's going on. Now, in this particular scenario, even more important because we've got some new councillors. Mm. Now, when I say it's an annual conference... This conference was actually held in February this year as well as in October this year, which doesn't okay. sound like an annual conference. It was like a make-up conference? It was a make-up conference. Okay. There was one that was meant to be held in October last year, but with some various shutdowns that were on at the time, they delayed that conference to February this year. So yeah. in February this year, we had a chance. We had a few councillors go. We had councillors Damien Mann, Lewis Burns, Jess Goff, Vicky Etheridge and myself went to that particular conference. Mm -hmm. And in this particular one, we had councillors Matt Wright, Shibley Shoudhury, Jess Goff and myself went across to it. And for example, when I look at, say, Matt Wright and Shibley Shoudhury, mm. they've now been on council for about 10 months. First yes. time they've ever been on council. And again, I encouraged as many councillors to go as they possibly could, but you've got to get time away. We drove across there on Sunday morning. I had Matt Wright in the car with me and, and Shibley and Jess drove yes. across separately. But you're taking time away. We left about 9 o'clock Sunday morning, so you're missing that family time. Monday, Tuesday, we're across there. We didn't get back till Tuesday night. That's two days you've got to take away from your work, away from your business. Yep. So it is a commitment from councillors as well. But for those two in particular, what they found absolutely invaluable mm. was we're new councillors. We have a little bit of experience on council now, but not a lot. But we just are so – there's so much to learn, and that's yes. the great thing about a conference. But they turned up at this conference, and they were both great at talking to people. I introduced them to some people that I knew, but just going out and talking to random people. Yep. But even after the first few hours, I was chatting to them both, and they said it's so fantastic – learning about other councils and the situations they're in. Yes. And they actually felt a bit more confident with themselves because they thought, gee, some of the things happening in Dubbo, all these pothole problems, mm. is that something that is only happening in Dubbo? Some of the issues that we're seeing, some of the community feedback, yeah. wow, are we, are we getting it wrong? Are we getting it right? How are we going? But just by talking to a few other councillors, they went, oh, some of the issues we've got mm. are just the same as other councils. Mm. How are they dealing with it? How do they cope with that? Some of these other new councils, I'm hearing from them and 
wow, they're telling me the same stories that yes. I'm hearing. So I think that was really good. So it gave them a bit of confidence. Yes. But then in the presentations we saw, so there were various presentations that occur over the conference just to learn about things in local government. Then you've got a whole range of motions that are debated. So 144 motions were submitted this year from various councils. Yeah, that's exactly boy, right. Boy, that's a lot of motions to get through. A lot of motions to get through. And there were some late motions that came in as well. So it ended up being over 150 by the wow. end of it all. But that was interesting just to hear from other councils, other people debating different topics there. Yeah. The funny thing is that the number one topic of debate was feral cats. It, and when I say that, I'm being a bit facetious. There were a, a number of... <laughs> items that were talked about in the early stages around funding, roads, how do we get more funding out of the federal government, how do we get some of the roads fixed up, and there were a number of those, and there wasn't a lot of debate around those because, to me, most of the people in the room said, yes, we need that, it's bleedingly Mm. obvious, so there wasn't a lot of discussion back and forth. Mm. When it got to feral cats, should we be keeping control of feral cats? Should we be housing them for a certain amount of time? How do we have enough money to house them for a certain period of time? Should we be putting them down earlier? Oh, All nice. of that debate, you can imagine, yep. that debate went on for a long time. And there is a little law, and when I say law, it's law in inverted commas, that's thrown around in local government circles yes. that says the length of time spent on a debate is inversely proportional to the amount of dollars you're spending. So when you might talk about a budget going through for $250 million, you might debate that for five minutes. When you talk about feral cats and they're costing us too much money to put down the each injection we might spend a couple hundred dollars on, $250 million or a couple hundred dollars, that debate on that couple hundred dollars will go for a long period of time. Isn't that life in general? (laughs) It is. That is just life in general. (laughs) We get caught up in the little stuff and that takes so much of our time. The the big picture stuff, we go, yep, absolutely, we've got to do that. That's so important. Let's keep moving on with that. All right, now about these feral cats. This is something we need to spend a lot more time on. Yeah. Goodness me. So, so, so then we, I'm sorry, we also had some presentations then by usually some government members or members of parliament come along, some ministers come along. Mm. So we had the local government minister come along and give a presentation. We had the regional roads minister, so that was a pretty important one. In fact, yeah. he got a huge cheer. It's his first conference. I was talking to him right. just a, a couple of days after the conference, talking about another issue. And I said, how did you enjoy your first conference? He said, yeah, it was a bit nerve-wracking sitting there in front of 700 councillors and you're yes. trying to give news. But I said, look, you were a hero of the conference because the first thing he said when he got up was, I've got an extra $50 million for you for your roads. And so you can imagine the room cheered. Yes. And when you break it down, it's not a lot. It's only a bit over half a million dollars for each council because yes. it's the 95 regional councils the money was for. But still, it's better to say we've got $50 million extra than I'm taking $50 million. Yeah. That's right. That's so it. I said, if you come along to every conference and hand over $50 million, you'll be more than welcome at every conference. shouting at beers at the bar for the rest, the rest <laughs> of your time you're there. That's right. So we had Greg Warren there as well. We had John Graham uh, came along and presented as well. Okay. Uh, so yeah, a few different members of parliament there, mm. a few different ministers came along and spoke. So that's always good as well, mm. just to be able to get in their ear and talk to them afterwards, which we took the opportunity to do that. Yeah. But even one presentation, there was a, a presentation by a, a member of the police force just talking about crime and things you might do as a council to try and reduce crime in your particular area. So okay. I think all of that information is invaluable. So even again, just yeah. when I was driving back with one of those councillors and we, we you know, had a bit of a debrief in yeah. terms of different yeah. topics that we talked about, but again, it just gave them more information, gave them more background, mm. gave them more experience. Contacts, all the councillors were there, have mm. got people they now know in other council areas that, that they can call on. Idea, yeah, it? that networking. Yep. But you've been to conferences in, in your life, oh, in your absolutely. professional career. Yeah, and that professional development, yep. I think, is something that is really invaluable. So when someone says, oh, another junket you're on, well, 
you've really got to stretch it hard to call it a junket, given the fact that we got there straight into meetings, straight into, into various sessions and such, yeah. then to bed, then the next morning you're up early, there's a breakfast on, you go through the whole day. We didn't finish till about 11 o'clock that night yeah. at various functions, and then again the next day you didn't get a chance to go down and enjoy the Hunter Valley and mm. go and sample some wines or anything mm. like that. Yes, it's really not a there. holiday. It's not a you holiday, know, that's right. But it, it is, I think, a way that you will get better decisions on council if you've got that broader context, that broader experience, that overall broader learning is going to make you make better decisions. Can I point to a decision we made at the last council meeting straight Mm. out of that conference? I can't say that any decision was different as a result of that, but there's no doubt about it in my mind. We will have better councillors if they've got more tools, more learning and more context across the whole industry. And more general wisdom. I suggest you pick up these sort of things. You know, you get that sense. You mentioned earlier about the whole idea that when you go along these conferences, you get the feel, I think it's, as you said there with, with Matt and um, Chipley about the whole idea that when they came back from that, they felt as though what was happening, their decisions are being made in this space, they felt more confident to make them because they knew then that everybody else was in the same space. And I think that's a really important part. And plus also, in this modern world today, so much of what we talk about with our, our online learning, where you have to sort of do these different modules and you know do your OH&S stuff now all online and there's different things, you learn this online. We miss that opportunity for that human contact, which conferences provide. So it's so good, the fact that we're actually opening up these conferences again to get back in, to network with people, just to generally feel the, the whole idea of what's actually happening out there yeah, in our on. industry. Yeah, And one of the things that I always find interesting is people will come over to you and introduce themselves mm. and they'll say they're from Council X. And the first question that councils often ask each other is, what's the big issue in your council area? What's yes. the thing that's yes. taking up all the councillors' mind space? What's happening in that council area? And... There are different things. Sometimes there'll be a similar theme, but there'll be different things mm. that they're talking about and different things that are important to them. But it is good to get that handle on some of the things that are occurring in different council yeah. areas. And some of the times you'll say, oh, well, actually, we had that issue five years ago yes. and we tried to do this about it. And this is what we did. Yeah, this right. work, this didn't work. And Dubbo was mentioned there in some of the discussions because 3D printing was one of the topics that was discussed oh, and okay. debated. Yes, our conversation last week. Yes. That's right. Exactly right. And so that sort of learning and the information we had from the background of that, Dubbo was mentioned. And then a few conversations were asked about from myself and from some of the other councillors there about how it's progressing there and what we might see coming out of that. So again, mm-hmm. one council area can be leading and, and various people talking about the progressive nature of Dubbo, the innovative nature of Dubbo, mm. going down that path of 3D printing. So questions were asked about us in terms of how that's progressing. We might look at another council and they might be doing something else differently in, in their space. So we can ask them about how they're finding that and what their solution is to that particular mm. problem. A- again, it's pretty fair to say that the common theme across the whole conference was roads, roads and roads. Yes. How do we get those better? Yes. More money, we, more money, more money. That's right. And we don't have an easy solution for that yet. Although I have had some discussions around maybe we should be doing some better research on roads, but that's a, a whole other topic of conversation yes. rather than just throwing more money at it because you do get to the bottom of the bucket pretty quickly. Yes, unfortunately. Well, no, welcome back and I'm glad to hear it all so successfully went. So that's fantastic. <laughs> Now, moving on, we've got, uh, I hear that you had a, a couple of phone calls during the week, and in particular, you received one from our Premier, Dominic Perrottet. So, what about, without sort of giving away too much of the personal information, the conversation, but we'd all obviously love to know what uh, what were some of the main areas of focus that you, you talked about the Premier with? You do actually come across people who are caring and genuine in the roles that they do, and I've had a few over the last couple of weeks. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Governor-General, David Hurley, and his wife, Linda Hurley, actually just rang me out of the blue. One of their staff contacted me and said, Matthew, are you free for a phone call? 
uh, absolutely, the Governor-General wants to call you, of course you are. So he rang, and, and, and again, um, David and Linda talked to me for probably more than half an hour and just wanted to know how we're going with the flooding, how our residents were going, and if there's anything they could do to help, mm. then obviously they would be there to, to help us out. And I just really said, I invite you back to Dubbo again. He's been to Dubbo before, but come out again, and we'd love to see you out here. But it's just nice to hear that conversation. I actually got a random phone call directly from a minister on Monday this week. It was actually from Christa McBain, who's the federal minister for local government. Okay. And I actually got a bit caught out because it was a no-caller ID that rang, and I answered oh, yes, the phone, yes, yes. and I just said, it's Matthew Dickerson speaking, and the person on the phone said, oh, it's Christa McBain. And the only Christa McBain I know is a minister for local government. Yes. And I didn't really expect her to ring. I expected right. maybe her secretary to ring. I don't know why they That's was, right. Yeah, and, yeah. and I and, uh, caught me, and I must have gone silent for a second, and she explained that she was the minister for local government. I said, oh, oh <laughs> I know that. And, and I have met Christy before, before yes. but I said, oh, I know that. I, I just didn't expect you to be ringing. Yeah, sorry, absolutely. I, that's I'm right. sorry I paused there for a second because I was racking my brain thinking, who else do I know that's named Christy McBain? Because yes. surely the local government minister wouldn't just be ringing me out of the blue. That's anyway, right. uh, again, she was ringing just to see how Dubbo was going. And I actually, at the end of the probably 15 minutes we chatted, and at the end of that time, I actually said, oh, look, I'm sorry, is there something else you're ringing for? Because mm. I, I was just so impressed that she rang to us about the floods, and I thought, oh, maybe there was something else she needed. And I said, she yes. said, no, no, I just wanted to see how you're going. I know you've had a bit of rain out there. I said, I'm pretty impressed, Christy. You've got 537 mayors across the nation. Mm. You're the minister responsible for local government. And the fact that you can ring me, ask about our flooding, Give me 15 minutes of your time. Yes. I, I was pretty impressed with that. And, and I did actually take the Absolutely. chance to ask her how she's going yeah. with that. And she's only fairly new on the role as well. So yep. there was a good chance for her to tell me a few bits of that. But that was pretty impressive. Yes. And then later on in the week, Dougal Saunders, our local member, just rang me and said, Dominic would like to catch up. Our Premier would like yep. to catch up again to hear about Dubbo and see what things he can do to help the situation here in Dubbo, am I open to a phone call? And of course, again, yes, absolutely. absolutely, yeah, the Premier wants to call you, no problems at all with that. So Dougal would organise that, and then so Dougal and the Premier rang me, and yep. we had a, a conversation there. And so that was good as well, just again to talk about some of the issues in Dubbo. And one of the things that we're really talking about, which the Premier was quite impressed by, is that it's easy for us as a council to just say, give us more money, give us more money. But not surprisingly... 128 councils across mm. the state are saying, give us more money, give yes. us more money. Yes. So you've got to try and think differently about some of those solutions. Yep. And one of the things that I did talk to the Premier about that we're trying to progress with our roads is we know we've got some projects either with land development in industrial areas or with our renewable energy zone. We've got some areas that we know we're going to have some road upgrades and road infrastructure upgrades that are going to occur. Mm. And in those cases, the developers will pay for those roads yep. or the renewable energy proponents will pay for those roads, but they're not going to happen for a few years. So one of our little creative ideas, and don't get excited because we haven't pulled it off yet, it's just an idea we've been working on, is to go to the point where we can get some guarantees from some of these developers okay. to say that, yes, that money will be forthcoming when we do that development in two, three, four years' time. Right. What we want to then do is have some sort of agreement in place, some sort of deed of agreement, for example, and we will then go on, borrow the money now, right. spend the money now on constructing those roads to a standard that those developers would have to construct them to, yep. but do it now and have it ready and done. And then when it gets to the point where they're meant to do those roads, they simply pay council the money because we've already done the work for them. Okay. And the Premier was quite impressed yeah. by that approach because, again, I'm sure he so many times people just say, please give us more money. Yes. So that was one that I thought was a good chance to talk to him about. And the other one was that big piece, I believe, that's out there 
on some significant research and development. So rather than just give lots of councils tens of millions of dollars, maybe keep a little bit of that aside and say, we're going to go and do some significant research. Now, when I did catch up with Sam Faraway, the Minister for Regional Roads and Transport, Mm -hmm. I caught up with him later on the week, and I did actually say to him that I'd love that same sort of concept. Now, he did say they're actually doing a bit of that, and they're actually looking overseas, because let's face it, if it's done overseas, why don't we steal the ideas here? So in the Netherlands in particular, they're looking at some of the ways they construct roads that are a bit different to the way they're being done in traditional road Mm -hmm. infrastructure or road maintenance. So there is some work being done there, but I suppose the point I was making is we can keep doing the same old thing, And we keep getting the same problems when we get rain. Yep. Then when it's dry, it's good. The roads seem to survive okay. And then we'll get rains again. Yep. What can we do differently so that we're not always chasing our tail in terms of road maintenance and road infrastructure? So it was he- good to hear both from Sam and from yes. the minister, the member, sorry, the premier, as long as our, as well as our local member, to actually say that there is that work being done yep. in that big picture, as well mm. as putting that money aside. Absolutely, I think we we're all caught in the whole trap. This whole idea of the fact there's a limited pool of funding. And we're going to continue to see these problems. And obviously around the state right now, we've got these issues with the roads. And, you know, there's so many problems here in Dubbo right now, as we've already talked about on a number of occasions, about the whole idea that the potholes are here, the roads sort of been breaking away. We do have to probably think a little bit laterally. We have to sort of probably think outside the square. How are we going to continue to keep the upkeep of our roads? If, you know, especially the options here now, these climate change problems that we're sort of facing as well, the more regularity of the the flooding, which seems to be sort of coming in on a more regular basis, the change in the weather patterns, There, it's, it's probably the time we have to start to think about what have been traditional ideas, can we sort of change those ideas and move into something that's a little bit more futuristic in the way we're thinking. So that's great. I'm sure the Premier would have enjoyed that conversation undoubtedly. <laughs> Now, Matt, I've got a couple of uh, listener questions for us today and to pass on to you. Now, the first one is this, and look, this is probably about roads, and obviously there's going to be a lot of people out there wanting to know about roads uh, in regards to it. Now, this is a, a question that came to me during the week in regards to the the gap between Sheraton Road there, where it finishes in the, the schooling district, heading down, down there to the roundabout on Boundary Road. Now, the road along there, it's in a pretty poor state right now, and the other issue along that section of the road is um, a number of kids now are starting to use that section of the road, walking along there, off the sidetrack there. There's no actual footpath or anything there for them, and they're honestly, they're dodging some of the trucks and this sort of stuff as well, and they're, you know probably shouldn't be doing it, but that's where they're sort of heading off down to, heading across now to South Lakes. Does Council have a plan at all in regards to either, number one, putting in a footpath along that section of the road, or number two, in regards to actually looking at what is the completion rate of fixing up that road through there? Yeah, it's certainly one of the areas of the road. Remember, we've got over 2,800, I think 2,872 kilometres off the top of my head of roads across the whole LGA. So with that length of road, there are so many people I would have every day, literally every day, several phone calls, several emails from people who say, I've got a section of road that's terrible. Can you fix up my Mm. section of road? Mm. Now, Sheraton Road is certainly one we know about. Obviously, it wasn't that big an issue when Boundary Road wasn't connected through to Sheraton Road. Yes, absolutely. When we had all the traffic coming in from the highway to that school area there, particularly in the pick-up and drop-off time in the morning and the afternoon. So that section was opened up. We got some state government money to open up down to Boundary Road. And it's probably fair to say that 
section of Sheraton Road has had damage done to it over the years from some industrial work that's been done there. Yeah, there's a quarry, quarry there. And yeah, that's, that's right. And there's, yeah. there's a large trucks that are going along that section of road. And probably in past years, as that boundary road section was being done, it probably would have made sense for some planning to be put into mm. fixing up that section of Sheraton Road, sure. knowing that as soon as you had boundary road open, that section was going to be used a lot more. Mm. That planning wasn't done, so there was no plan in place to actually go and do okay. some work on that particular road. So we've got to do a bit of catch-up planning. And so that's what we're doing at the moment is seeing how we can get some of that work done there. In, I'll, I'll do your second question first, which is basically in terms of the footpaths there. Mm. The footpath section there, that will all be on the western side of that road or be residential area at some point in time. Once you get past the school area, that'll be residential. So there's development work that's going to happen there in residential. And as part of that development of residential, there'll be something like a footpath. I can't tell you exactly what form that will take. There'll be something like a footpath along there as that residential area starts to grow and develop there. That's not tomorrow. That's no. down the track. There's a right. fair bit of development to occur before that happens. In the short term, what we've got to do is work at some way to construct that road to a higher level because yeah. it does need to be built to a better level. And this is part of the area that I talked about before. We were talking about potentially getting some developers to put some money in mm. in the future but get the council to do the work in the short term, again, knowing that's going to occur. As you go through Blue Ridge, there are some roads that we'll take through the Blue Ridge Industrial Area that go off the Mitchell Highway, come through and then join back into either Boundary Road or take traffic right around that area. So mm. the first part would be get some of those trucks, example, those trucks from the quarry, get those away yep. from going up Sheraton Road and take them through other exits out onto the highway or other exits out around that whole area there. So that'd be step one, get some of those bigger trucks off there. Once we do that, we know that we're going to reduce the traffic, make it safer in the school area, but also put less pressure mm. on that particular pavement area. Then, obviously, in the medium term, do some major reconstruction work down there. Yeah. We're obviously looking for some government funding to do that sort of work at the moment. And again, with the school area there, we've got a stronger argument than in some other areas where we want that road to be reconstructed. I can't give you a time frame on sure. any of that because, again, there just wasn't that planning put in place. In an ideal world, it would have been, we're going to connect Boundary Road yeah. and we've put aside funds so that three months after Boundary Road's open, we'll go and reconstruct that whole area there. Unfortunately, that wasn't done, so we've just got to try and work out some funds, mm. keeping in mind that in this financial year alone, we've already allocated $28 million in our budget to be put towards major reconstruction work and road maintenance. So it's not as if nothing's being done. There's some work to be done. But as I said, we've got that incredible length, more than 2,800 kilometres of yeah. roads across the LGA. So not, not a definitive answer there for sure, you, I'm sure. sorry. No, no. no. But, it's, but again, I, it's about a lot of the priority, uh, those priorities. Prioritisation, that's exactly right. Just in regards to that, is, is there an opportunity then, I'm thinking more from the point of view of, with the safety side of things, with the kids walking down that, uh, that path there. A lot of the, there's a lot of growth. And obviously right now with the massive growth around the place everywhere, it's really accelerated. On that, let's say that western side, we're talking about that road going down there. Is there a chance that we can sort of look about, I don't know, maybe even widening that, so to speak, not so much putting a road in there, but to create somewhat of even a, a dirt path or something through there where there's to allow kids to walk through along that section? Because, again, right now there are kids walking down through there and it is a bit of a safety issue, I'd suggest. Um, we'd all hate to sort of think someone gets bowled over in that space. But there really is no room for a lot of them to walk through. They're sort of on the roads there right now and they step off it, they're going to be in the grass area. Is there a way that is part of the priority that council could put in that we actually keep that area at least maintained to an area so they can walk along there? Where did the kids go before Boundary Road was open? Were the kids going out 
onto the highway previously? Is that where they'd normally walk? or were They'd they... probably go down, I'd suggest, walking along Sheridan Road, going up there to the Main Street or Cobra Street, sort of yep. heading on down through there and probably going that way. Yep. But I think what's happening now, and again, look, it's it's probably this is a discussion that parents probably need to have with their kids as well in regards to what's the safest route getting home. Kids being kids tend to sort of do their own thing from time to time. Um, I think what's happening now is some of these kids who are living up there in the South Lakes District or in South Dubbo District are finding it's a quicker run to come down through this way to do that. And uh, so it's probably an area that I suggest that just to allow a bit of a space for those kids who are making those decisions to walk along that space there to keep it at a level where they can at least walk safely in that area. Yeah, and I suppose the really important part from a council perspective is looking at strategic planning, what you don't want to have a council do is have someone ring up and say, the grass is a bit long over there mm. and my kids use it, so can you just go and mow that area there? Yeah. And if you do that, then you take work schedules out of schedule. The most appropriate thing in that scenario would be that, for example, some of the schools there might communicate with council and they might say, we've now got increased use of the kids using that area in the past. They used to go down the highway. Yep. That was okay. Yep. There's traffic lights on there. They can get kids across the road there. That section now doesn't have any of that, doesn't have anywhere safe than to walk along. Can you change your maintenance schedule? Mm. So as part of the ongoing maintenance schedule, even getting it mowed once isn't going to help that much because no. grass will keep growing. Yep. Can this be added to the maintenance schedule to keep that area safer okay. there? And then, again, our team that's headed by Craig Arms there in terms of all that maintenance and mowing does a fantastic job managing huge amount of green space across the LGA with limited resources – Again, trying to feed that into that schedule to have that as part of a another schedule that might be nearby and then mm. add that into that overall schedule. So I'd okay. encourage whenever something like that happens, I encourage people just to send an yeah. email, Perfect. mayor at au. give us some context and logic around that sort of process and then we can feed that into the scheduled maintenance program and see if that can happen. Again, what I don't want to have happen in, in any council scenario is just those ad hoc decisions because yes. it's expensive to get a crew just to go to one spot, mow that particular area and then go off to the next mm. one becomes Become expensive. Become part of it, as you say, that maintenance scheduling Correct. sort of thing. Yeah. Give it a and high priority and push it through that way. And yep. we've got okay. different priority levels for different areas across even at parks. So for example, Victoria Park, our premier park in Dubbo, has got a higher maintenance schedule than some parks in, say, some of the suburban areas where it might not be mowed as often, may not be cared at to the same level. And that's sensible because you're trying to always balance your budget, balance how much money you've got available to you. You can't have everywhere done to the mm. same high standard because you just don't have the money to do that. Or if you do that, you remove money from somewhere else. So if you want us to do that community, if you want all the yep. parks done to an incredibly high standard, then sure, that's fine. But do you not want bins picked up every week, for example? Mm. So what, what do you trade off yes. as you do one part? That's always the challenge yep. for the community. The prioritisation question again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yes. right. But that's yes. that sort of thing there. Again, there's a logical argument there to say that now that road's been opened up, kids are now using that when they didn't use it in the past. Is there some way we can make it safer? Is there some way we can have some sort of program, some maintenance there? So yeah. send that through. We'll okay. feed that through to our team and see what we can come up with there. Wonderful. No, that's great advice. In regards to the second viewer uh, listener question, um, it's in regards to the area outside the LWO jail. Now, obviously, we've had the, the beautiful, um, what was it, Visionscape? Was Sky it? Castle. Sky Castle, that was it. Yep. Fabulous. It was wonderful there. Now, that area there, there's, there's been a grand plan there for this area. Where are we up to with that? Is that now, now the Sky Castle's gone, what's, what's the next phase of the, the operation with that? Yeah, we're stalled at the moment. Oh, okay. What's, what's <laughs> happened? <laughs> so there was a wonderful plan that right. was put together there, and there was money that was given by the state government to put together a plan there. It was about 
reactivating CBDs, reactivating areas after COVID, yes. get people out and about again. And if you remember, it was the old state bank building there, yes. I think, from memory. Yeah, absolutely. And so that area there kind of kept the jail a little bit hidden away. And you remember Benjamin Stokes that used to be out the front and used to scare oh, people as they drove the past? Benjamin Stokes. It's very, yeah, very actually, sad for old Benjamin. I'd love gone. to bring Benjamin back. Yes, absolutely. So the plan was, <laughs> that's right, the plan was to take away that state bank building, open it up, make it a plaza, and the plans have been out there publicly available. So you see that whole plaza area there. We want to encourage people to come down, sit around, have mm. a, a lunchtime feed there, maybe drink a coffee. Absolutely. There's going to be some be beautiful. active artwork yeah. up on the wall there. So the plans will look fantastic. First thing, obviously, was to knock the building down. It was quite an innovative way they knocked that down. They knocked it down from the inside out where there was a machine that sat inside there that basically chewed the building out really? and left the outside so it kept it safer for people and yeah, created right. less dust around the area. That all got knocked down. Then it was a matter of cleaning up the area. Now, we were concerned ever so slightly that there may have been some old parts of a building that were buried under the ground there. Right. We were told by heritage officials that effectively, as long as they weren't exposed, if the ground that was over the top of them was left there as it was, then that was okay. We didn't need to do anything. We didn't need to make a major heritage investigation. It was always assumed that might have been another jail wall or maybe another wall from another building. But basically, don't expose it and everything should be okay. Take the... the ground back to ground level for us to go and put those other components on there. So the assurance was given. It was okay if. That's right. Unfortunately, as that process occurred, when they were cleaning up that site, they probably did go down a little bit too deep or maybe some of that infrastructure underground was a bit higher than anyone expected. And then it was exposed. There was a wall there, an old part of a wall that had some heritage value. So the brakes had to be put on. Right. So the whole site had to be stopped. And then we need to get heritage officers in, which we've been doing, and then get the advice about what do we do with that. So suddenly, now that it's known that it's there and it's exposed, do we need to now make that part of the whole area there, that whole cars area there? Can we cover it up? Do we have to expose it? Do we have to do something around that? Give it some interpretive signage, for example. We're waiting for the advice to come back about that, and this might also add to the dollars of the whole project. Mm. So we've just Mm. got to be careful there about what that original plan might have been if you've got to spend some money, whatever it might be, on that heritage component, does that leave enough money for the rest of the project? Yes, so we've got to keep working yes. through that project. Okay. So I'm keen to see that open up. I think it will actually help our visitation with the jail. Absolutely. Uh, yes. I think it will help activate that whole CBD. I'm pretty excited about the CBD. With things like number one, Church Street, the apartment living in the CBD, I think we'll see more activity in the CBD, in particular, more activity at night time. Mm. And this area there will just help create that more activity in the CBD, which I'm really excited by. But again, we've got to do it the right way. We can't just gloss over it. We can't just ignore it. Look the other way. We've got to go through a correct process there. So it's stalled, a bit frustrating, but again, good question from one of your listeners or one of our listeners. Again, we'll keep working through that process and we'll keep communicating as we know more. At this stage, we don't know enough really to to have much communication out there except to say it's stalled. We'll get it back on track as soon as we possibly can, waiting on that advice. And one of those uh, other questions for another day, and we'll hopefully be able to get back to it soon with a bit of an answer on that one as well. That'd be great. The council meeting during the week. There was uh, We had our um, opportunity there for a council meeting, get all the aldermen together. What were some of the, the main takes from the meeting? What um, Any decisions made and what's happening? Every council meeting there's a decision made. Lots of, of course decisions there is. Made. Of course there is. That's right. One of the things that I'm still very impressed with with this council is that we've got a group of councillors that are all happy to have their say, all put their views forward, but all do it in a very respectful, very polite way without 
being a shrinking violet. They're all happy to have their say, but you can do it in a way that means that I respect your opinion, Mark, yes. but I don't agree with your opinion. That's right. And that's okay, because we live in a democracy and we don't want everyone to be identical. So that still happened and lots of great discussion occurred at the council meeting, mm. as I see happen at every council meeting. And at this stage, we're 10 months or so into this new council, and I still think the council group is really working well together, where Excellent. they are having those respectful discussions, yep. respectful disagreements, and getting good decisions coming out of council. Right. And one of the, the real challenges for me in particular as a mayor, but for all councillors, is a council resolution is a council resolution. So it doesn't matter what your opinion was before that resolution was made. Once it's a resolution, mm. that's the decision of council. And whether you agree with it in the first place or not, you've got to suck it up that's and right. go forward as the resolution. If Absolutely. it was such a bad idea, if this idea that we've just all agreed to was so bad, then you should have argued harder yes. or your point of view should have been heard louder, if you like, yes. to get us to go in a different direction. But if the resolution has occurred, we've got to live with it. Now, the, the best example I can give mm. is that one time in my previous stint as mayor, I had some wonderful idea. It was a brilliant idea, I thought. And I brought it to council and I put it forward there and there was some discussion and debate around that. And then as mayor, I said, all those in favour, my hand went up. And at that stage, we had 11 councillors. Right. My hand went up, and no other hands went up. And I paused, waiting for some other hands to go up. The wind was blowing. <laughs> That's right. You could hear the pin drop. <laughs> Tumbleweeds. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, all those against, my hand went down, and 10 hands went up. And I went, hmm. That's a humbling experience. It wasn't such a good idea after all. <laughs> the funny part was, the next day I'm on radio talking about it, and I had to say how this was a wonderful decision that council had made, yes, and it was the best thing for the community, because again, council had spoken, so it was irrelevant it. what That's my it. opinion was. It was irrelevant that I voted against it. Yeah. The council resolution was a council resolution, and I can't put enough emphasis on that. Mm. We as councillors, the one thing that we do control is the resolutions that are made at council. So we've got to make sure that we're very comfortable and very confident. And sometimes I've heard people say, other councils at, at this council or other councils around the state say, oh, well, we went that way because that was the staff told us to do. Well, that mm. was what the staff told mm. us to do. And I said, no, no, the staff didn't tell you to do that. You made the decision. You might have got some advice from the staff. You've got professionals there. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an expert mm. on engineering. So I've got to trust the advice I get from the staff. But if I don't think it's right or I don't quite understand some of it, keep asking questions until you understand it because, and I've said this to especially the new councillors, when you turn up to a soccer match the next day or you're going into a pub or you're running to someone at a cafe and someone says, why did you make that decision, Mark? You've got to be comfortable and confident enough to say, here's why I made that decision. Yes. It is not good enough to say, oh, that's what the staff told us to do because yes. they don't make the decision. No. The councillors make the decision. So it's a really important process there mm. about doing that. So every council meeting we do make decisions. You know, this, sorry to interrupt you there. Yep. It actually reminds me of a great line whereby someone once said to me, there's a reason why we have two ears and one mouth. Yeah, yeah. Which I just sort of think fits in perfectly with so many discussions that we have is the fact you have to be able to take on board the opinions of others first. Yeah, that's I know exactly. we all think we have the best opinion, but we've got to listen to others first, yep. bring it all in, and there's nothing wrong with changing our opinion. Yeah, that's right. And you, you cannot ever say that I'll give the responsibility of that decision to Mark to make the decision and I'll just go along with him. Yes. You can't hand over your decision-making ability. If we're sitting around a council meeting, I go, oh, Mark's in education, and this particular decision involves education, so I'll just let Mark make the decision, and I'll go with that. You can't hand over that responsibility to someone else. Every no. decision you make is your decision. That's right. And, and again, I have That's stressed it. that to our councillors a lot, that these decisions we make, 
you are making this decision. You are saying what council is going to do. Saxa Road. There's no doubt about Saxa Road was built a number of years ago by Wellington Shire Council. It's in the Wellington area or the old Wellington area. And it was never, ever built for the volume of vehicles on that road now and the weight of vehicles on that okay. road now. There's a number of logging trucks, for example, that go on that road. It's a convenient route to go to for so the logging So does Saxa Road, does it just sit outside of Wellington? Like, whereabouts for our listeners? It's on the Dubbo side of Wellington. And if you before you get to Wellington, you turn off left before you get to Wellington and go out along Saxa Road. It'll eventually get you across to Danny Dew Road. But it is used to certainly, have, again, logging trucks go on there. There's farms that live along there that have got various goods they need to take to their farms or products or cattle they might take off their farm, for example. But that road is in a shocking condition. It's a okay. terrible condition road at the moment. Yep. And we've taken a fairly drastic step there. And again, this is a council resolution, but yes. we're relying on advice from the staff. But we asked lots of questions, and that was an important thing to do, that at the moment we've closed that road to any trucks. Now, that's okay. an interesting question. So yep, you, yep. You, if you're in a truck, you can't drive on that. Of course, people say, what's a truck? I've got a Pickup truck, is that a truck? So we had to put some sort of definition. So basically we've said if you've got a vehicle that's over four and a half tonnes gross vehicle mass, then you can't go on that road. So we're defining a truck basically Mm. over four and a half tonnes. So if you've got a light vehicle, if you've got a ute, if you've got a four-wheel drive, you can go on that particular road. If you're over that four and a half tonnes, you can't go on there. Now, if we just left it at that, that would cripple some of those farming businesses along that road. That's a a pretty big call when you stop and think about it. It is a pretty big call. So we've also then said if – you've got local traffic only, you can go along that road. So if you've got to go and pick up some cattle in a vehicle that's more than four and a half tonnes, but you're going to a farm on that road to pick up some cattle, you're allowed to do that. But you've got to be able to prove, if you get pulled up by a policeman, for example, along that road, you've got to be able to prove that you are doing something that's required along that road. So it's local traffic. Mm. If you're just passing through that road, that will be a result in a fine. So you can actually, we can actually enforce this in terms of that road closure there. So we'll be putting up signs. We'll be communicating with various vehicle operators in terms of freight operators there that you can't go on that road. Now, that's a pretty big hit for some of those companies that need to basically take that road across because yeah. they will then depending on where they're going exactly, they might add another 50 kilometres, maybe another 100 kilometres to some of their journeys they might make. And you can imagine from a freight company, Mm. you don't want to add distance, it adds fuel costs, it adds time to get it from A to B. So that's not a great thing to do. But that's an indication of just how How bad bad a condition that road is in. So this is obviously a safety reason for the for the residents who live out that way. Is that the the main reason for it or probably a couple of things there. Safety is certainly a big part of it there. But as those large trucks go on it, it obviously damages that road even more. Now this is one of those roads in particular where we certainly have talked to state government about the urgent need for funding on that. And just to go mm. back one step, those 2,800-odd kilometres of roads that I talked about in our LGA are defined in three separate ways. You've got state roads, regional roads, and local roads. Now, state road, for example, is the highway. Going down the Mitchell Highway, that's a state road. We don't have control over that. We don't pay for anything on that road. The state government manages that road, pays for the maintenance on that road, reconstructs anything that needs to happen on that road. They may pay council as a contractor to do some work on that road, but it's purely as a contractor. So the state government's entirely responsible. If I jump to the other end of the spectrum, a local road is something that is obviously a local road. So roads that you and I live on from, in terms of our uh, houses, for example, you go down the CBD of Dubbo. Yep. Those roads that are on that are obviously designed for local traffic only or primarily local traffic, 
they're ones that council's got the responsibility for. We pay for that. Occasionally we might get some grant money for some road maintenance or road infrastructure on those, but typically we pay for it. In between those two, mm. you've got the grey called the regional roads. Right. Now, regional roads are council's responsibility. We are primarily having to do the work on those roads, but there's an acceptance by the state government that those regional roads have a larger importance, they have regional significance. Right. And as an example, Saxa Road is okay. one of those because yeah, right. it's not primarily local traffic on that road. There yep. is some local traffic. But you've also got some of that bigger traffic, some of those logging trucks, example, that go through there. So there's an acceptance by the state government that they should help. So they give significant help to those regional roads, although council's still primarily responsible for Mm. those. There was some discussion by the state government previously about taking back over some of those regional roads. There was a bit of a push Mm. by a number of councils to take back over those and call them state roads rather than have them as regional roads. There's a few, not a lot of that has happened. There's a few problems with that in terms of getting them into the right condition before they start. I won't go, that'll be a discussion for another day. Won't go into detail on that. But at the moment, they're still regional roads. So Saxa Road, we're saying to the state government, we'd like some money yep. to help with that because it's a regional road. But this is also one of those roads that I talked about where we're trying to take the innovative approach and saying to proponents in that renewable energy zone, we know you're going to have to spend some money on some of these roads to bring mm. all your materials on those roads. Yep. We'll go and do the work now. Down the track, when you're meant to do that work on the roads, we want an agreement from you that you'll just pay us back the money that we spent on that road because something drastic has to happen with Saxa Road. We can't continue to have a road in that poor condition because it's impacting businesses significantly, both those freight businesses and those businesses that are along the way. And when you talk about priority level, someone says, the safety of my children is the highest priority. Wow, we don't want to have a child injured in terms of a poor road. So absolutely, I agree with that. Mm. Then you have someone say... It's crippling my business. I can't get my cattle off. Or, or when the wheat crop comes mm. in, I can't get the wheat off that. It's crippling the economy in that area. Oh, no, that's terrible as well. We don't want to cripple the economy. Yes. So you can see these competing priorities all the time. Absolutely. Potholes, people are damaging cars. My wife had two tyres damaged on her car oh, this morning. God love, her. So, I, God love her. She told me this story. It's, yeah. it's a shocker. And, it really is. And again, I say to people all the time, drive to conditions. I said to my wife, drive to conditions. And yes. she said she did, but yes. obviously not quite driving to those conditions. <laughs> so it's very real for people out there. So yeah. people say it's damaging their vehicles. It's costing them money. Yeah. Absolutely. So which is the highest priority yeah. out of all those? I mean, obviously children and anyone yes. being injured, I'd always say is a higher priority than the economy. But yeah. you can't cripple the economy either. You can't just say, we'll put all our money into focusing on safety and not worry about anything from an economy perspective because Mm. that damages people as well in terms of that process. So it's a tough one. So Saxa Road was one of those decisions at the council meeting, a long answer to your question. about. But that's right, because it's an important conversation because the the fact is roads right now are one of those things you say, like your own wife there this morning, God love her, was was affected by it. It is something that we need to know more about. And for a lot of listeners out there, I suggest they want to know where the funding runs and what the responsibilities of council in what areas. So thank you for outlining that. That's very good. The preparation of renewable energy benefit framework. Now, talk me through this. It's it's a very complicated sort of opening statement there, but uh, help listeners out and help me out too. What does this actually mean? And this is another decision at Council on Thursday night. One of the things that's a really interesting scenario, and it's actually one of the topics I brought up with the Premier when I discussed a range of items with the Premier, one of the things that I've never understood to this day, I've never understood it, and hopefully we'll get some clarity at some stage, if... I want to go and put in a wind farm, which, fantastic. We've got 33 wind turbines at Bedangra down in Wellington. Yes. Each one of those turbines produces enough power for about 3,000 homes. So that's fantastic. Mm. Wellington's doing its bit to help climate change. They have to, as a compulsory part of their approval process, they have to have 
a community benefit fund. In this case for Bedangra, it's about $85,000. Okay. So that's $85,000 that that developer every year pays back into the community in a couple of different ways. I won't go into the details sure. of that, but that's money that comes back into the community. There's another wind farm that the proposal is basically almost at the end. They haven't started construction yet, but that particular one out at Ungla will contribute $320,000 to the community. Is it a larger setup? Or? It's a larger setup, okay. that's right. And rules have changed in the meantime. So that one at Bedangra has been around for a while. If that same one was done at Bedangra now, it will be more than 85000 Okay. So happy days. Yeah. There's also a fantastic 200 megawatt solar farm down in Wellington. As you're going across towards Mudgee, opposite the jail, you'll see these a huge number of solar panels out there, 200 okay. megawatts. 72,000 homes are powered by that particular farm. Wow. Fantastic. It's and the community benefit fund for that one is zero. Yeah, now we talked about this this last week in regards to this. The wind farms, they pay something. Solar farms pay nothing. Mm. Yet both are meant to be environmentally friendly, environmentally friendly options here in regards to energy. Why? What? Why the difference? Well, I'm, I'm asking that question. I don't know. I have no idea why there is that difference. And the interesting part there is that the Community Benefit Fund, in some respects, is meant to help the fact that you might be taking away other industries from there so the community's missing out on some money. Okay. But the confusing part there is that wind turbines I absolutely love because mm. that farmer is picking up some income from leasing that little bit of land that each wind turbine is on. Apart from that, that farmer runs the rest of his or her farm yes. in the same way. They've lost that little tiny bit of space where the farm, the, the turbine sits, but the sheep roam around, they keep grazing on the paddocks. The farm mm. can still run as a farm, but they've got this guaranteed income, so it doesn't really have a negative benefit on the economy mm. in that local area, but it has a very positive effect. Mm. When you put a solar farm in, often you lose some of that farming, especially if it's cropping, you lose that. If it's grazing, then the potential there, as we talked about before, where you might have some sheep grazing still around that, but you're still losing some income from the local economy, so wouldn't that make more sense? Yeah that that would be the one that would have the community benefit, not the wind farm. So I don't understand why. I don't understand the history of that. And what we're going to do is fix that problem. Now, there's a bit of talk around, and again, this is out of the conference. One of the great things there was the Armidale mayor. I went and had a chat to the Armidale mayor and introduced the other our other councillors to the Armidale mayor because right. they've actually just negotiated with a solar farm for a $5.9 million over the life of the farm or that solar farm there over the life of that to have $5.9 million come into the economy. So was that done specifically by that local council up there in Armadale or A little group of councils up there okay. and negotiated with that. Now, it hasn't come off yet right? because they haven't gone ahead with any of that yet. In fact, the approvals haven't gone through yet, mm. but hopefully that will all happen. So it's a pretty good step in the right direction. Absolutely. The number that seems to be thrown around generally is about 1.5% of the total capital expenditure. So in other words, if you've got $100 million for yep. the project to be built, 1.5% over the life of that farm goes into the community in some way, shape or form. Okay. At the moment, that doesn't happen. The mm -hmm. What went through council on Thursday night was the councillors, us asking our staff to go and put together a framework that we can have as a policy so that when we're negotiating with some of these proponents, we can say our gotcha. council policy is this. Now, we're not in a really strong position because we are not the consent authority. When a solar farm is put in, the size of these solar farms that are being put in down around Wellington, for example, they are all state-significant developments. Okay. We don't get to say yes or no to them. So, so we don't get to sign off on these? We don't get to sign off. We can say, we'd like some money, please, and if right. we smile nicely, could you give us some money? And we'd like you to do these other things, and we'll smile nicely again, but we don't get to make the final decision. So our power in that agreement mm. is very weak because we can ask for as much as we like, yeah. and they can say, well, you don't make the decision, so thanks for your input, but over here – 
is the committee or the organisation that makes the decision. And that's so a state government run, that's state a, government run operation? It's a process, yeah. They're, they're called okay. state significant developments. Right. And as such, they get to say yes or no. We don't get to say yes or no. Right. They'll listen to what council has to say, yep. but ultimately we can ask for a huge community benefit fund, but they yes. don't have to do it and we could be just thrown away to the side because it's a silly request. Is it just me or does that seem unfair? You are spot on. What we want to do is actually have a framework in place to say, here's what we'd like to see come out of this as a policy position of council. They might make take a bit more notice of that and that 1.5% seems to be a common one thrown around. But again, I did mm. talk to the Premier about that and said, in our area, we're going to help save the planet. No doubt about that. Wellington is going to pull more than its fair share in terms of the planet-saving processes in place. Yep. It seems fair that the Wellington residents, the Wellington community, gain some benefit from that. Absolutely. And, and you can understand why, I think, again, why people become quite frustrated with this. Mm-hmm. If you're in a situation, again, whereby out here, this, this region, I'm guessing now, has become somewhat of a, an environmental-focused area. You know, like We're putting a lot more wind farms out here. We've got the solar farms out here as well. It's quite a large area now for this, and it's an expansion area. Yet, again, we talked about this last week, I suppose, and, and this is getting even more and more depth into it. I would suggest the fact that people are starting to go, wait a minute, all of this area, that's great. And again, we're doing a bit, but we're not getting much back on this. No, no, um, no. You know, Lane Cove, you know, North Shore Sydney, you know, they're all quite happy to turn around and say, yes, we all want to be environmentally friendly, but let's go and put it out west. That's all fine, and it's, they look great and this sort of stuff, but there's a cost. Yeah. And where's where's our kickback? Yep. Yeah, I yeah I, I feel the frustration. I'm certainly engaging here too, Matt. That I suggest the council they're feeling it as well a bit with this. Yeah, that's right. We we would absolutely be able to use some of that money for a whole range of community based oh, projects. Absolutely, even if it wasn't just roads. But sometimes I've got to fix up roads as well. Mm. Oh, very good. Moving on, we've got the event assistant program. So the round one, the community events, the fund and destination events fund. Now, I'm assuming this is in regards to um, what was happening here in regards to these community groups and, and the funding arrangement and how much money they're going to get. So how'd that go down? We, we have plenty of applicants this year or what we happened? We did have plenty of applicants. And this is one of those processes back in, in the old days. Sometimes there'd be various organisations that would come to council and say, oh, we just need a bit of money to help out with this. We're a not-for-profit-based organisation. We're doing great things in the community. Can we have some money? And there wasn't really a formal process to do that. It was just sometimes you'd get these ad hoc applications come to council or you'd get the mayor of the day who would say, yep, that's fair enough. Let's work out some way to get some money out of a budget to give to you. And it just didn't seem like a fair, open and transparent process. Mm. What we've got now is these community events funds and basically you've got to put an application in, you've got to answer a range of questions, you've got to have some rigour around the process mm. and then eventually all that comes to council. Is so it like suggesting we have a business plan to council, this is what our idea is, this is what we want to do, is it, is it that type of an idea? Probably not that heavy because some of these groups and we don't expect them to have that detailed a business plan because mm. they are very small groups run by a small sure. group of volunteers and the quantum of the funds they're talking about often isn't a lot. Mm. What I do like, and it's a great opportunity each year to talk to some of these groups where we actually hand them over these checks. And I mean, yes. the money goes in their bank account. We have the, the yep. novelty check to hand them, of course. <laughs> but what I love is you talk to these groups and sometimes if I'm feeling like I, I want to put the pressure on them, put the asset on them, I actually get them to, at the presentation, actually get to, them to stand up and talk about their projects or sometimes I'll talk to them one-on-one. Yes. And what I always love is that we might give them $500, might give yep. them $1,000. Sure. But what they tend to turn that into is significantly more than that through their volunteer help. Yes. So I look at it from a business perspective. I say, well, a business had that much money, they wouldn't be able to achieve much. But 
that organisation or this organisation, gee, they've achieved a lot with that money yeah. because they've got these volunteers and they've got this passion and they really do a lot with it. Mm. So this is one of those – actually, this is a really good example of where the staff might say a recommendation, the staff might say we've gone through these applications, analysed it, and then they bring it to council with a recommendation. Okay. But councillors can then say – well, you didn't say yes to that organisation. We think that's a really good organisation. Or you said that yes to that one. They've got money for the last five years. Surely they need to be able to do it themselves now. In this scenario, councillors went to discuss these various ones. And in the end, yep. we went ahead with the staff recommendation. But again, if someone says to me, why did you give money to, and pick anyone yes. at random, yes. then I've got to be able to stand there with my hand on my heart and say, that was a worthwhile project to give it to. So there's you. a genuine discussion that takes place over each of these items, or each of these groups. Is that how it works? That, the, at the staff level, they will analyse the applications that come right, in. Okay. Then when it gets to councillors, then again, I don't think there'd be a detailed discussion that we would have over each individual one. Sure. It's more ones that might stand out and say, why are we giving money to that one or why did that one miss out on that money? So it's more at that level and asking some questions okay. of our staff about why that decision was made and how that comes about. Again, at this particular one, they were quite happy with all the ones that were there. But you, you look at some of them there. And actually, I was speaking to a Wellington radio station the other day and I hadn't thought about it, but he picked out all the ones that were from Wellington. And he was quite impressed in terms of if you look at the population of Wellington compared yes. to Dubbo, it's about, say, a four-to-one ratio. You could say that the funding might be four-to-one ratio, but they got much more than a four-to-one ratio out of these Oh, ones well there. done, Wellington. Yeah, that's right. So, again, we don't really say we've got to give some to Wellington, some to Dubbo. We just base it on You're the applications that come in. Yeah. yeah, But things like the Wellington Show, $3,000. The Stuart Town Carols by Candlelight, $1,000. The Man from Ironbark. Got two and a half thousand dollars now. I do declare an interest there. I go down and do poetry for them each yes, year. There, yes. I don't get paid for that, of no, course. So it's that. it's volunteering. But I do love the Man from Ironbark Festival. I think it's so going every year that festival too. It's been it? going for a while now. Yeah. A couple of breaks, obviously, during COVID. But but you might say that I was biased in my decision making there because I do love the Man from Ironbark Festival. Absolutely. But the reality is, it, it, obviously, no peculiar interest there. I'm not getting money out of it there. But again, these decisions that are made help some of those organisations just to make sure they can run the event. And sometimes people say, can council just waive the fees for an application they might require? Mm. Or can council just lend us something? And we tend to say, no, we're better off doing it as a more business, a cleaner process. Yeah. So put an application in for some funding and still pay whatever you've got to pay for the hire of that thing or that application fee, but use the money that you might get out of council to pay for that. And it just makes it cleaner rather than Absolutely. someone getting favours, yep. which then doesn't look very good, or someone getting lots of favours and it adds up to a lot of money when people yes. hadn't considered how much it adds up to. Yes. So that seems to be a much cleaner way to, to run it. Uh, but other ones, you know, you get ones there that uh, things like the Wellington Rotary Vintage Fair, $5,000. So that's a, an interesting one. The Western District Ladies Golf Tournament, $2,030. That was an interesting one. The 2030, on the not 2000. No, 2031. apparently the 2030 was needed, okay. yeah. So there's a, a range of things. I, I won't go through the whole list. Yeah. There's a number of them there. But they are great community groups. And Absolutely. we like to help them out if we can. Again, budget restraints in place. But we like to help them out if we can because we like to see those organisations out there doing some great work. And they are. That's exactly what they're doing. Wonderful things out there in our community today. I've noticed here the fact too that uh, you met with the Department of Regional New South Wales there. Now as chair of the uh, that committee, um, looks like you've been trying to promote the employment relocation here. So what's what's it's a big question, isn't it? Because obviously right now in our community there are so many groups that are struggling to get employees, you know, yes. to get the workers on the ground. Yes. You go anywhere, you talk to anybody, whether it's a doctor, an engineer, a teacher, in IT, it doesn't matter. Everyone's calling out for workers right now. So this is a big thing. If we can get more people to double into our region, it's better for everybody. So did you get any success? 
Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> the One of the other roles that I have undertaken since I've come back on council is chair of an organisation called Regional Cities New South Wales. There are 15 cities that are members of that organisation okay. and we're talking about places like Dubbo, Orange, Bathurst, Wagga, Armidale, a variety of cities, some up and down the coast as well. And it's probably, it's grown up from an old group called Evo Cities, which mm. I was chair I of. Back, those days, yes, yeah. Yes. I, I was chair of that organisation back when I was on, I was mayor before, and essentially that's kind of grown from the seven cities that were in Evo Cities to fifteen cities now. One of the things that we used to find with Evo Cities is that we had great success in getting people relocated to our Evo Cities through jobs. When I talk to people, when we read our surveys, or look at our data, our research, we found that people would make up their mind to get out of the big smoke and come mm. to a regional area, but once they made up their mind. It then took them some time to move because they had to find a job. Yes. They didn't find a job, they didn't make the move. So we kind of thought maybe a better way to do it is to go with an e- a thing called Evo Jobs where you had the ability to look for jobs as part of that relocation yes. process. Yep. Now, Evo Cities stopped getting funding as part of or after the amalgamation and things changed a bit and then Regional Cities was born. And so as chair of Regional Cities, I've actually had some conversations with the department okay. and with the relevant minister being Paul Toole around that same concept because at the moment the state government gives regional cities no money it's paid for all by the individual cities right and we said we think it's fair and reasonable that you give some money because we can help solve part of your problem in getting people out of sydney putting less pressure on the infrastructure in sydney and to date i haven't had a lot of success and the big problem i've had has been they've had a focus on relocating government employees if you're a nurse if you're a teacher they want to re- see you relocated. Yeah. But if you're a mechanic or a solicitor or an accountant or a barista, they don't care about the relocation. And I, mm. I'm saying that a bit flippantly. Mm. I'm sure yes, they do I care, but they don't want to give money no. to regional cities to help with that relocation problem. Now, I've, I've put the argument before, which has vaguely been accepted, but I haven't got action out of it, to say that the teachers and the nurses won't move to a regional city if they can't get a coffee or can't go to a doctor, or can't get an accountant. Yep. So the picture to move those needs to be a bigger picture, more a holistic solution, yes. rather than just a, well, let's go and advertise to get nurses out there, we'll pay them 10 grand to move, or mm. whatever it might be. So the argument has been, let's relocate every position that's needed out there, and we, Regional Cities New South Wales, can help solve the problem, which will help solve problems for Dubbo as well, because yep. as one of those member cities. And again, I've gotten some strong vocal support, yes. and I even had a previous head of the department say, in the next budget that comes out, we've got $2.4 million for you. And the budget came out, sure enough, there was $2.4 million. Unfortunately, he retired. Yeah, okay. And as I've gone and had further discussion with various members of that department, I've got to that point where I've hit a brick wall where they're yep. only interested in nurses and teachers and people that mm. are employed by the government. Luckily, we've got a new head of that department now, the replacement, and this is they're only acting at the moment. Right. So as soon as that was announced, the first thing I did was jump on the phone and say, I, I need to have a, a meeting with you. Yeah. Had that meeting for about an hour uh, this week, and those discussions were along those same lines. That you need to be looking at all of those. Now, luckily, that particular person said, yes, I agree with your concept. Send us those proposals again. We'll go back and have an, another look at those. So more success than before, because I'd right. kind of hit a bit of a, a dead yeah. end previously. Yeah. Whether we'll get a positive outcome out of that, I'm not sure. I did bring up with the Premier. I've brought up with Paul Toole before as a relevant minister. Hopefully we'll get some action there. The money's sitting in the budget. It's not being spent at the moment. They haven't got any program to actually use that $2.4 million in getting any relocation. One of the problems they have is that 
it's focused on those 15 cities, not everywhere. Yes. And I've said quite unashamedly, well, I'm a little bit focused on Dubbo, mm. and if I can get a bit of a victory for Dubbo out of being in partnership with those 15 cities, I'm happy to do that. Yes. But I really don't care that you're going to be losing people from Sydney, and I'm the mayor of Dubbo. Yep. I'm not the mayor of another area where else yes. you might pick in the in the state. So I'm really focused on Dubbo and those 15 cities as the chair of those 15 cities. Mm. So that's a really important part for me that – I want to focus on that. And mm. you can focus oh, on other yeah, parts for other absolutely. programs, for other areas, but that's my focus. Yeah, I always find this a really interesting discussion when it comes to, let's call it decentralisation, you know, moving out of the, the central area, of the, as they call New South Wales, Newcastle, Sydney, Wollongong, moving out of those spaces, getting out to the country regions where it's all happening. But you look overseas and you go to, let's say, America for argument's sake. You go across over there, they have these major centres all over their states, and they set them up as major centres all over the states. We just still seem to be so city-fied in regards to where our focus is, city coastal fire sort of thing. And I look at issues like this in regards to, you know, the old Evo city processes and now that, you know, the, the, the new name here of the regional um, New South Wales. What, what, why, why are they so hesitant, I'd suggest, in regards to wanting to, to push the regional factor? Um, you know, just again, to me, as, as maybe as a frustrated regional citizen, I just don't know why we don't get the uh, the support, the impetus, and all of that sort of stuff that I feel as though we deserve out here. Yeah, I think it's probably ignorance is one of the things that I've found. And one of the things that really worked well during the Evo Cities campaign is we did do a lot of marketing in Sydney about the seven regional cities. And some people said to me, well, Evo Cities, that's just a marketing campaign. I said, no. Evo Cities, it's a marketing campaign. Mm. And that's what it was. It was about educating people, telling them about what we have in regional areas because some people in Sydney still think there's tumbleweeds rolling down the main street. We've yeah. got six shoes at 20 true. paces. and it's, It is sad, but mm. they don't realise that you've got all these wonderful things in regional areas, regional cities, the same as you've got in Sydney, the beach. They often get me on the beach. We've got Sandy Beach, but not a lot of surfing happens on Sandy Beach. But apart from that, all the things you've got in Sydney, all the wonderful things you've got in Sydney, you've got those in regional areas. Absolutely. But they're easier to get to, easier to access, yep. and obviously much cheaper, much better cost of living overall. So it is a bit frustrating. Yes. I'll keep banging the drum for as long as I possibly can, as long, long as they keep will. hearing me. That's fantastic. And see how we go and see what we get out of that. That's wonderful. Now, moving on there, Matt, the last of the three auctions of Keswick Estate occurred during the week. Now, obviously, last week we talked about it. I think we sold in the first one there, 10 out of 17. The second one, zero. Big duck egg on that one. Yep. How did we go on the third? So the first one we sold 11. 11, Don't sorry, want to miss out on one there. My bad, my bad. <laughs> uh, the second one, you're right, we sold zero. Yes. And then the third one, so we had 18 lots for sale on the third one. And we had made the registration process easier because there was a bit of feedback that the registration process was a bit too difficult, yes. a bit too onerous. So yes. we'd made it a bit easier. We'd hyped it up a little bit more. We tried to hype it up a little bit more to tell people about it. And so we had the auction, and out of the 18 lots, we sold one. 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 Well, there it's, was some it's, bids it's there. one more than the, the second one from That's right. Point. There were some yes. bids there at some lower prices, okay. below the reserve price. But there were some people also, for whatever reason, who were asking me at the auction there, what are you going to do next? What's mm. happening after that? Now, I couldn't say anything till after the auction, sure. but I can say now that what we'll now do is take those blocks that haven't been sold and go out to private treaty. So a, mm. a traditional sale, if you like, where people can just go along, they know what the price is, they can have their finance arranged, they can go through a normal sale process. I also do want to declare that the one that was bought 
at the auction was bought by a councillor. Okay. And it was interesting because that particular councillor asked myself and asked the CEO, was it inappropriate for him to actually go and bid on one of those box lands mm-hmm. given the fact that he's on sure. council? Now, one of the things that people might jump at shadows a little bit about mm-hmm. is that, oh, no, a councillor should be trying to, should not be trying to buy a block of land that council owns. But a councillor is still a resident of Dubbo. Yes, They're still yes. a human being. They've still got the same rights as any human being. Yep. If that councillor had come to council and said, right, we need to get blocks of land for sale tomorrow, we need to get out there as quick as we can and really push that and then turn around and started buying blocks of land at that, then I'd be very concerned. Yes. In this particular case, and I'll, I'll name the councillor, Matt Wright was the councillor. Sure. In this particular case, because he's involved in the finance industry, every time we had a discussion come up about this, he declared an interest and left the room for any discussion about it because the concept was that someone might borrow money through his business to buy a block of land so it could be seen that he was trying to push blocks of land to help his business out. Okay. Bit of a long bow, but yep. he took the safe option and then left the room. That was the reason he left the room, as a result of the fact that at the end he said, well, I might want to go in and bid at an auction for a block of land. It was actually quite good that he'd left the room. That wasn't the reason he left the room, Mm. but he was still out of the room. So he wasn't involved in any discussions anyway. But even if one of the other councillors who was involved in those discussions had said at the third auction, oh, I'm interested in buying a block Mm. of land on that, Mm. I sort of said, that's okay because it's an auction. What fairer way could you possibly have to buy something than at an auction? If it was done at a private treaty it might be a little bit different because it might be argued that that council was involved in yes. setting the price to the private treaty and then went in and bought on that. And then he's talking to a staff member about buying that. So he might be trying to use his influence in the staff mm. member. So there might be mm. all sorts of hairs over that. Mm. But when you're at an auction, you're there in a room. Mm. He came into the room physically, stood there. Everyone knew it was yep. him. It wasn't like he was trying to hide behind no, something. No one was bid on, on his like behalf. Yep. No, nothing like that at all. And so he was bidding on that at the auction went through that process yes. in that open, transparent process. There were online bidders, et cetera. But yep. he bid for that and bought that block of land in that way. So I don't have a problem with that. No. From next week, some stage, we'll get out there with a process to actually sell okay. the rest of those blocks. And I think they'll still sell fairly well, even though the second and third auction didn't go so well. I'd like to have seen more sold there. Yes. I think there's enough interest in those blocks of land. I mean, some of those blocks, we had 12 people registered for bidding, okay. but they didn't bid high yeah, enough right. on those. And it, look, it's, it's probably not uncommon I'd suggest the fact that when it comes to auctions that that's exactly what happens, that people wait to sort of see until what the price was it got to and then they come back in afterwards and they look at renegotiate then on a, um, yes, through a private sale after that. So, and In my opinion, we probably were three months too late. Yeah. I think if we had have been in there three months ago when interest rates were a little bit lower sure. and there was huge demand on blocks then, yes. it would have been perfect. Unfortunately, we couldn't get things to happen quick enough to make that happen. So mm. it ended up being a bit, Later, but we'll still sell them, and I still confident yeah. we'll sell them for good prices. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got plenty of blocks out there to exactly still be right. sold, so uh, we Tell know where friends. to go. Absolutely, spread the word. All right, Matt, let's finish up today with that. Uh, I enjoyed last week your limerick. I think it's only uh, timely we finish with uh, another limerick on the week that was with Matt Dickerson. Sure, this was the highlight for the week, of course, that I try and feature in this Outstanding. Limerick. This week, councillors were in the Hunter Valley to meet other people and become rather pally. But there was serious business to be had as we discussed our future launch pad and committed to our residents to never dilly-dally. Oh, I love it. Well done, Matt. Well done again. Well, Matt, again, I've really enjoyed our chat again today. Thank you, folks, for tuning in, and we'll catch you all next week on the Merrill Memo Podcast. Until next week, take care. Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.